Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to a special edition of the ER. We recently hosted a conversation with Dr. Jane Goodall, founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and UN Messenger of Peace. We honored Dr. Goodall as a Global Thinker Lifetime Achievement Award recipient. Each year, foreign policy's editors recognize 100 leading global thinkers whose ideas have changed and shaped the world in which we live. In 2016, for the first time, we honored 10 individuals with Lifetime Achievement Awards. FP's Lifetime Achievement global thinkers like Dr. Goodall have led their fields through decades of creativity, insight, wisdom, leadership, and the courage of their convictions. But I'll tell you a little story. When we started thinking about this Lifetime Achievement Award, it's because we were thinking of Dr. Jane Goodall. We had a conversation about her. We thought, this is somebody who really deserves special recognition. And so it was a special honor for us to be able to get together with her, to give her the award, and to hear from her perspectives on the situation in the world, the global environment, people in Washington, a whole range of issues which she addressed with incredible humanity, wisdom, humor, and courage. We know you'll enjoy the conversation. Please sit back and enjoy this special edition of the ER. You know, the, glo- the Global Thinkers series that FP does each year is, is perhaps the most prominent thing that we do. The events attract a lot of notice. The, the stuff we do on the web attracts a lot of notice because we have focused ourselves as a media organization on the people and ideas that are changing the world. And so when you bring the people together with the ideas, you end up with the, 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 the core of what we're about but also some of the most compelling stories that exist in the world today. And the most compelling of those are the ones that are revealed in this Lifetime Achievement Award process, which we've, we've just begun and we're extremely proud of. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I actually sort of wanted to begin in an offbeat place. You know, these conversations that we have, we like to focus on the future and, and, and what the conclusions and, and, uh, that you've drawn from your work might might suggest about the future and the times we live in. But I I would like to sort of begin in a kind of, uh, in a different direction. Because as I've followed your career and read about your work, one of the things that has struck me most is almost metaphysical. It, it, It has to do with the fact that from the very beginnings, your work has explored what was once a very bright line between human beings and animals and has broken down that line, and has essentially said, we are much closer than we thought, and we have much to learn. Uh, and in fact, Carla, who you've met, uh, who's my fiance, and who we were discussing this, often will say animals are her teachers. And it's, it seemed to me in some respects that uh, in your work, you've found that as well. I'm, am I misreading it? Well, absolutely correct. And, you know, when, I, when I'd been in the field for two years, and Louis Leakey, my mentor, although he never came to Gombe, but he sent me there and he found the money for me to go. And after two years, he said, Jane, I won't always be here to get money for you and you'll need a degree. Well, I'd never been to college. And he said, we haven't got time for you to do a BA 
you'll have to go straight for a PhD and I've got you a position to do a PhD in ethology at Cambridge University. Well, I didn't know what ethology was. So I was a bit nervous when I got there, only to be told by these professors of whom I was in awe that I'd done it all wrong. I shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names. They should have had numbers. I couldn't talk about them having personalities, minds capable of thinking, nor certainly emotions, happiness, sadness, fear, and so on. But I'd had this wonderful teacher when I was a child, and he taught me that for all their erudite knowledge, in this respect, they were wrong, and that was my dog, Rusty. So <laughs> <laughs> you cannot share your life in a meaningful way with any animal, a dog, a cat, a horse, a cow, a pig, a bird, and not know the professors were wrong. And, you know, I think they knew it too. Only in science, you must be able to prove everything, and they couldn't prove it. Therefore, it didn't exist, or at least you couldn't talk about it. So you got your BA at the University of Rusty. <laughs> um, when, you know, it also seems to me to some extent that you got it. There, there was some good fortune. You know, again, I was reading some articles about you as I was preparing for this. And, you know, you had saved money and you prepared to go off to Africa and you mislaid your passport. And fortunately, somebody had found it and brought it to you. Otherwise, who knows what would have what would have happened. But you also then went off into the wild after Louis Leakey had set this up. And you encountered a chimpanzee very early on who you named David Graybeard. And he began to accept you. And, and if you'd encountered a different chimpanzee, I, it just struck me that the story might have turned out differently. It, well, they, David was part of a community. And the big problem was that they all ran away. They'd never seen a white ape before. And I was a white ape. We are apes. We are the fifth great ape. And... You know, Some of us in Washington, not so great. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we talk about orangutans there, don't we? Yes, yes. Oh, nice. Very nice. If you, if, you, if you haven't picked that up, write it down and think about it later. Yeah, very, very good. <laughs> oh, I'm so naughty. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so, yes, so anyway, this white ape was very frightening for the chimps who are very conservative. And they would run away. And then this one, we don't know why, but they're all different. They all have their own personality. And um, this one, very handsome, and they, you know, they're not all handsome. And he had this beautiful white beard. And I don't know why David, uh, but his best friend became Goliath. So it was David and Goliath, uh, David Greybeard. I'm reminded one of my very oldest friends in this room is uh, David Shear, who was chairman of JGI for many years. And he is David Greybeard personified. <laughs> At any rate. Um, Very glad so, that I, as another David, don't fall into that category well, because you, of my youthful appearance. Well, it's because you shave. <laughs> <laughs> I was warned so, about this. Yeah, go on. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, so David, for some reason, began to lose his fear. And then when I, then he came to my camp to eat palm nuts. It was a tree that ripened. And one day he found some bananas and took them. So I asked my cook to put bananas out. I was up in the hills every morning and eventually stayed to see who was this chimp coming in and taking bananas. And it was David Greybeard. And that, of course, made him even more accepting of my presence. But when I came upon David, in the forest with a group of other chimps, they were ready to run away. 
But if he was there sitting calmly, even approaching as opposed to see by the banana, they would look from him to me and back. And they must have thought, well, she can't be so dangerous after all. And so gradually, it was like an introduction to his friends in the forest. Goliath, whom I came to understand was the top-ranking alpha male, and timid William, and then the matriarch Flo, who must have been at that time at least at least 50 years old, if not older, teeth down, worn to the gums, but still a wonderful mother, still fertile. And I learned a lot about mothering from her and, you know, gradually met all the others at 50 in one community. Now, was, was Flo the one who had all these children that you gave names to begin with F? Yes, all the Flo family, Flo and her daughters and her grandchildren and finally her great-grandchildren, although by that time she's gone. They can, they can live to be, the oldest in captivity is 74, 75. Interesting, this oldest lady, she's in Florida, which is where a lot of elderly yes. people go. <laughs> anyway, she's wonderful, little mama. But in the wild, we think they, it's rare to live up to 60. Because, you know, teeth get worn and there's more disease. But, you know, in, it, it seems that David Greybeard and a few of these others essentially became co-authors and introduced you to, to the world that then you introduced the world to. Yeah, well, they, they certainly were my guides. They led me in into their world. But it, when one reads your work, the conclusion you come away is that to give numbers to animals that have such rich personalities would be actually a grievous mistake. Of course it would be a mistake. I mean, we don't give our dogs numbers, do we? And uh, the sad thing is when we number animals, we belittle them, we turn them into mere things. And when we turn them into things, we do unspeakable uh, things to them. You know, it reminds me, and this may seem off the point, but I, but I, but I actually don't think it is, that until the 70s, in Australia, Aboriginal people were categorized as fauna, and, and it allowed Australian colonists to treat them in an abhorrent way because they were classified down as animals. Think of the Holocaust. Every Jew was numbered on the church. Laboratory chimps are numbered, only fortunately NIH has released them from the labs now, but they still have their numbers. Well, it, raise, it, you know, it raises an interesting point, which... Again, this is the metaphysical, and I'll move on to the policy. You know, these are Washington types, and they get very uncomfortable when you get metaphysical. They prefer policy talk. No, no, you're no, more spiritual group we have here than usual. Otherwise, they're more like scientists. They're more, yeah, right. But, but best that, you know, to, to the extent that something like a soul exists, it exists also within these creatures. And, and that we do, we, we, I'm just wondering, you know, I, I don't want to pry into your innermost thoughts on, on, on spirituality, but I'm just, have you grappled with that? Have you thought about that issue? I've thought about it ever since, actually ever since the Holocaust. And I have been thinking of it ever since. And recently, and this is, well, first of all, I found a great sense of, of a spiritual power when I was out in, in the forest where everything is interconnected. That's when I came to the conclusion, as you just said, that if I have a soul, then these other creatures have a soul. And it's like a, a little spark of that great spiritual power. And, you know, if you have it, then 
so does the chimpanzee. And I sometimes wondered about the trees as well, every living thing. But what's really fascinating, the director of NIH, Francis Collins, who you probably know, yeah, yes. have you read his book, The Language of God? Well, it's, this is the most fascinating book. This is the man who led the team that unraveled the human genome. And he said he began as an agnostic, but the more he, he contemplated the amazing chemistry and design behind the structure of every single cell in our bodies, the more he realized that this couldn't possibly be by chance. It's a fascinating book. So he became a believer because of his science. Well, I bring it up n not simply because I think it's a, it's a compelling idea. It's the foundation of some religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, all believe in uh, that there is a kind of a great connectedness. And, and we're all part of one thing. And that the more you realize that, the more it changes your behavior. And of course, you can walk through a street in India, as I did not so long ago, and there are cows walking in the streets and other things because of this sense of the connectedness. The flip side is that if you don't see that connectedness, then you can abuse what's around you. And, and it seems to me that not only have human beings done that for a long time, but that we are at a pivotal moment with regard to you know, our civilizational views towards this issue right now. And that it's the lack of seeing the, the, the wholeness that puts us at risk of destroying its component parts. I think we, we you know, we, we've harmed this planet most grievously. Things aren't looking very good in many countries today about uh, our leaders' attitude towards the environment. And the, the reason I began our program for young people, which we call Roots and Shoots, is because I kept meeting young people high school students, university students, who basically were, were mostly apathetic, not seeming to care much. Some of them were really depressed. Some of them were angry, even violent. And all of them, when I talked to them, said more or less the same, well, you've compromised our future. And there's nothing we can do about it. So we have, and you keep hearing this expression, we haven't inherited this planet from our parents. We borrowed it from our children. And that's wrong. We haven't borrowed from our children, we've stolen, and we're still stealing. And, you know, now we're told that uh, jobs and the economic development of America are more important than, than the environment. So that's betraying the future yet again for our children. And, you know, so, but, but I still believe we have this window of time. Maybe it's wishful thinking, I don't know, but I choose to believe that there's a window of time when we can get together and start putting things right. And we owe it to our children. If we, if, we, if we don't try, we shouldn't have any children. And so Roots and Shoots began with 12 high school students in 1991. It's now in 98 countries, about 1,500, sorry, 150,000 active groups, ages kindergarten through university. And interestingly, talking about aging, We've just started pushing it for older people. And I just was in uh, Chengdu in China, and here was this group of retired people. And they'd started a Roots and Shoots program, which is choosing projects to make the world better, one to help people, one to help other animals, one to help the environment. And they said that since they began taking action like this, they now felt 
that their lives were useful and they wanted to go on living before they just wanted to give up. I think that's a very powerful idea. And I look at, you know, as I look sort of out to Deb and the AARP conversation, one of the things they've taught me is that if you see a 10-year-old American child today, there's a 50% chance that that child will live to be over 100 years old. And so the question is, what do we do with our whole lives? And there are these groups of people who are somewhat older, who have all the experience in the world, have the ability now of technology to utilize them, who might be an army of activists that never existed before. And how, you know, the indigenous people uh, revere their elders. They don't throw them away into retirement homes. They revere them, listen to them. That's one thing for our, for our young Roots and Shoots members to go and talk to old people and hear their stories, hear the stories of what it was like 50 years ago, 60 years ago. I can talk about what it was like 70 years ago. I can't remember much before that, but I can certainly remember when I was 10. Well, and, well, and that's, you know, that's an enormous gift, and it used to matter that couldn't tote a barge or lift a bale. But now in the information age, having 70 years of experience plus all the tools of technology is very powerful. And, you know, I mean, I can talk to children and their eyes get very wide and say, when I was your age, these are 10, 12-year-olds, there wasn't any television. There weren't planes flying people back and forth. Uh, we traveled by boat. You couldn't Google anything. Um, you, if you wanted to get a message quickly, you had to do a telegram. And then faxes came in. No, telex is next. You know, so I've seen so much change. I started my notes handwritten. And that's how we wrote mostly to each other by letters. And then I got this old typewriter, you know, like this. And eventually somebody persuaded me to go to an electric typewriter. Big innovation. Now we have laptops and iPads and things like that. So all, all those technologies are coming to places like Africa where you've been working. And, um, I mean, in many countries in Africa, cell phone penetration is, is approaching 100%. And this is transformational. We're, in fact, we're a few years away from the first moment in the history of the world when every person is connected in a man-made system because we'll all be connected in this, this Internet system. And there are many positive changes associated with that, with that. But one of the things we've learned from technological revolution is as many positive changes as are associated with any breakthrough, there are also risks. And as you look at the area that you've spent so much time in Africa, and you see the changes that are coming, what worries you the most? What, what are the greatest risks that you see looming? Well, the greatest risks for chimpanzees, all the other creatures that share their environment, is the destruction of the forest. And that is partly due to human population growth. Um, it's due to the, the demand for more and more meat, so cattle are moving into the forests and um, turning them gradually into woodlands because they eat all the young plants. And forests are disappearing, of course, because of the big timber companies. Huge areas cleared. Now the big danger is the oil palms, and that's particularly in Asia. And so whole forests being destroyed for these monocultures, and along with the destruction of the forest, all of this amazing biodiversity of life, this interconnect system, is gone. You know, it reminds me as I listen to you talk that at some point in this process, you became a vegetarian. Maybe you'd talk a little bit about that because uh, I think this is where a cow comes in. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, I was like sitting here going, 
am I going to ever figure out a way to get these stuffed animals into this conversation? Well, cow, cow was given to me, and you can't see it in the back very well, but silly little stuffed toy, and I was going to give her away. And um, then I thought, no, cow can help me. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm told, people say, why are you a vegetarian? Well, I'm, I became a vegetarian because I started to understand about factory, animal factory farming and the cruelty and the abuse. But now it's not just that. Some people don't seem to care, although cows all have their own personality and and they're actually amazing creatures. But have you spent much time with cows? Yes, I have. I used to be able to milk them. I probably still could, but but you just haven't tried recently. Well, there's not really many cows to try to milk. They're all in these awful places. Anyway, never mind about that. But we also know that as more and more people around the world eat more and more meat, it becomes a status symbol, and so more you know billions of animals, cows, pigs chickens, turkeys, sheep, they're all being raised for food in these horrible conditions. They all have to feed. So more and more grain is grown. So forests are cut down to grow the grain. And huge amounts of fossil fuel are used. And this is used to transport the grain to the animals, the animals to the abattoir, and the meat to the table. And in addition to that, it takes an enormous amount of water to change plant protein into animal protein. And then this is why I carry cow around, especially when I'm talking to kids, because, you know, it's a bit of a serious subject, but you can say, food goes in here, and gas comes out the other end. And that happens to be methane, which happens to be a very, very virulent greenhouse gas, because carbon dioxide is the most frequent one. If you don't care about the environment and you don't care about the animal welfare, you probably care about your own health. And it's the misuse of antibiotics and keeping these poor animals alive, never mind if they're sick or not, they're just routinely given antibiotics. And so the bacteria are building up resistance. So we get these superbugs, these, these bugs that are resistant to antibiotics. And I happened to be in England, I think it was two years ago, possibly two, maybe three, when the Surgeon General said the era of the antibiotic is almost over, and a great deal of the problem is caused by modern animal agriculture. This sounds a lot like science to me. And here in Washington, you know, we're not so sure about science. Oh, I know that. Yeah. It, you know, these are, you know, we, we, we live in an era where people can actually appear on television and say, well, this climate change thing, it's just a theory. Just a theory. It's um, we can tweet it too, right? Right. We, we, we could That's tweet it. That's the preferred it. way these days. Among some. I, I think by the end of this conversation, you're going to take back your orangutan remark as being unfair to orangutans. <laughs> I've already said that. <laughs> I've already said that. Uh, well, but, but you know, I, I do think that this kind of war on science is, is, a, is a very, very serious problem. We can, we can joke about it because to most of us, it may seem ludicrous. Um, but clearly, to a large enough member, group of people, uh, it is not ludicrous. They, they buy it because it suits them. It suits their corporate strategy or it suits their ideological position. And we have some of the people, including not so far from here, the most theoretically, the most powerful person in the world, saying, this is just a theory. Or vaccines, they cause problems. They're, you know, they're, they, they don't actually help with health. But in climate change, it's a, a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. 
in order to make their products more more profitable than the American ones because poor old Americans won't be able to do anything because of all these terrible laws put in place by previous administrations that we must now immediately overturn to open up jobs for miners, coal miners. What's your reaction to that viscerally? Viscerally, it makes me feel sick. I mean, all the work that's been done to try and protect future generations, just, a, a, you know, signing a piece of paper, turning it on its head. Don't we care about our children? Don't they care about their children? Are they really not understanding or are they simply saying that in order to boost their political image among their constituents? And we'll travel incessantly. 300 days a year, you're having conversations, presumably, that touch at least tangentially upon these issues. Oh, yeah. As you go around the world, what is, what is your sense of the, the, the global perception of, the, of this kind of war on science and pushback on, on you know, established facts? People are shocked, dismayed. I was in Hong Kong when the news of the election came through, and there was complete shock. And when I heard it, I, I just landed, and, um, and I know it can't be true, but it was. And everybody, you know, of course, I only know a certain level of people who come to my talks and things. They're all feeling exactly the same as I presume everybody. Well, as I look out at this room, they do seem a little queasy. Um, and I think that's possibly because, because of this, this subject and how uncomfortable it is. And because how much so many of these people want to be able to do what they can to help advance the ideas that, that you've spent your life working on. You've got a variety of different programs that, you're, that you've been advocating to that advance these issues. Could you talk about those for a second? Yeah, well, I think I'll lead into it by saying, after I got my PhD, I went back to Gombe, uh, built up a research station. Students were coming studying different aspects of chimp behavior. I had time out in the forest. I had a little boy by that time. I had time to analyze data. I had time to write. And th they were the best days of my life, no question. And then at a conference in Chicago in 1986, we had a session where we there was a conference bringing all the people studying chimpanzees together from different parts of Africa. By then, I think there were seven study sites. And we had a session on conservation that was shocking. It gave me nightmares for, for weeks. So I went to that conference as a scientist. I left as an activist. And it was since then, October 86, that I haven't been more than three weeks in any one place. I knew I had to do something. I did not know what to do. So I went around Africa, learned more about the situation. And I did learn a lot about the plight-facing chimps, the beginning of the bushmeat trade. That's the commercial hunting of wild animals for food. The live animal trade, shooting the mother to sell the infant for zoos, circuses, in those days, medical research. Risks from human health as people push further into the forest. Chips caught in snares. So I learned about all that. But I also learned about the problems facing the people living in and around chimp habitat. The, the crippling poverty, the lack of health and education, ethnic violence, already some competition for the natural resources. And it came to a head when I flew over the little Gombe National Park, where our study is still going on, by the way. It's now 56 years old. And we're still learning new things about the chimps. But anyway, when I first arrived in 1960, Gombe was part of the equatorial forest belt that curled right round, went over to the West Coast. 
and it's in Tanzania, by the way. And when I flew over in 1991, Bombay was a little island, a forest surrounded by completely bare hills. I knew there was deforestation. I was not prepared for the shock of what I saw. And that's when it hit me. If we don't do something to improve the lives of these people, then we can't even try to save the chimps. There were too many people for the land to support, too poor to buy food from elsewhere. Of course, they were cutting the last trees to try and grow food or make charcoal because they had to in their struggle to survive. So that's when the Jane Goodall Institute, uh, Take Care, or we call it Takari, uh, our program, which began with 12 villages around Gombe, very holistic, not marching in as a bunch of arrogant white people, you know, well, we'll help you to live better lives. No, a Tanzanian team sitting quietly with the villagers, asking them what they thought we could do for them, starting with what they wanted, growing more food, restoring fertility to the land, no chemicals used to cause. Then moving on, one of our, I think, most important interventions was microcredit for groups of women based on Mohammed Yunus's bank. He's one of my true heroes. He started the cell phones out in the villages. And this program is now in 52 villages around Gombe and down south. It's used to restore the forests around Gombe because the people, now they trust us, have made land use management plans that land aside around Gombe as a buffer. They understand the value of like shade-grown coffee, letting the trees grow back, that it provides shade, it provides uh, stability of soil on these steep slopes. South of Tanzania, most of the wild chimps still live, and they're not in a protected area. So we use the same program there to protect the forest. So if you fly over that area now, you won't see bare hills. They're not there anymore. There's trees. And we've even used some of this modern technology you were talking about to get high-resolution maps. And so the villagers now see these high-resolution maps. They know where they can grow the trees. There are forest monitors from each of the 52 villages. Volunteers go to workshops, learn how to use these i-tablets and smartphones, go into their forests, and if they see an illegally felled tree or an animal trap or a bullet on the ground or on the positive side a chimp nest or sighting of a leopard or something. Then they press little buttons and get little photos and it all gets uploaded onto a platform in the clouds called Global Forest Watch. Thank you all. And thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>